0: just before we start just to mention that i was due to be preaching again next sunday morning that's what's in the update and that was the plan but my mother is unwell at the moment and so we've decided to use the half term week to visit my parents over in northern ireland and steve has kindly agreed to step in and cover for me next weekend so we won't be here as planned we do hope to be back for the following sunday after some time away so i do appreciate your prayers for my mom and my dad actually at the moment but today we are continuing with second kings so if you have a bible you could turn there just as you're turning there we've been looking at this for a while we're quite deep into these books but if we step back and put first and second kings in the context of the whole storyline of the bible from beginning to end if we consider where we are at this point what we find is that for around 1400 years at this point god has been working very carefully he's been revealing himself to this people he's been fighting for this people 1,400 years of God's care and attention. And what's the result of it all? What state of health is this people in? That's a question to ask ourselves as we read our passage this morning. We're turning to 2 Kings chapter 13. If you're using a church Bible, the green ones, that's page 382. And in the larger print ones, 588. As we read this chapter, we're going to hear about the northern kingdom of Israel. At this point in history, Israel is divided into northern and southern kingdoms. And last time, we were down in the southern kingdom of Judah, in in chapters 11 and 12, And we heard about King Joash and what he was doing down there, his repairs on the temple in Jerusalem. But now the focus moves north again. And as we read this, let's try, if we can, to make an assessment. What is the northern kingdom in? In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned for 17 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit. And he did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And for a long time, he kept them under the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor. And the Lord listened to him. For he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. The Lord provided a deliverer for Israel. So they escaped from the So the Israelites lived in their own homes as they had before. But they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued in them. Also, the Asherah pole remained standing in Samaria. Nothing had been left of the army of Jehoahaz except 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Aram had destroyed the rest and made them like dust at the threshing time. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoahaz, all he did and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria. And Jehoash, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 37th year of Jehoash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned for 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, all he did and his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his ancestors, and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said. And he shot the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows. The king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones... The man came to life and stood up on his feet. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Hezael king of Aram died, and Ben-Hadad his son succeeded him as king. Then Jehoash son of Jehoahaz recaptured from Ben-Hadad son of Hezael the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoahaz. Three times Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. This is God's word. And in the end this passage is about God. It tells us he is the God of life. But before we get to that, remember, we're doing a health check on Israel. And if we do that health check, what we find in this passage are signs of death. Now, if we've been following through 1 and 2 Kings, this is nothing new to us. Three times, this passage mentions the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. That all began back in 1 Kings chapter 12. When Israel split in two after Solomon's death, Jeroboam became the first king of the north. And just about his first act as king was to build two golden calves for his people to worship. That move into idol worship was the road to spiritual death. And that was 116 years before what we're reading this morning. So Israel has been dead for a long time. But we might have expected to find some life in this chapter. Why? Because verse 1 says the king we're dealing with in this chapter is Jehoahaz, son of Jehu. And where do we know that name? Well, the last thing we heard about the northern kingdom was King Jehu's purge. Chapter 10 described how he went to great and bloody lengths to get rid of Baal worship in Israel. So when we read here about his son Jehoahaz, we might expect a fresh start. Maybe a return to worshipping the living God. But look again at what verse 2 tells us. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam son of Naboth, which he had caused Israel to commit. And he did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and for a long time he kept them under the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. It's almost as if Jehu's reign never happened at all. It's as if the judgment God brought through Jehu never happened at all. Israel just continues in her false worship. And Israel reaps the bitter fruit of that as God brings more judgment, this time through the Aramaeans. Israel falls under the power of that long-term enemy. But as we've looked at Kings, First and Second Kings, one of the things we have learned about God is that he has an enthusiasm for mercy. We've seen that over and over again. The God of the Bible doesn't need much persuading before he forgives. He is eager to save and to deliver. And he shows that again here in verse 4. Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor. And the Lord listened to him. For he saw how severely the king was blessing Israel. The Lord provided a deliverer for Israel. And they escaped from the power of Aaron. So the Israelites lived in their own homes as they had before. Jehoahaz turns to God, and God does what he loves to do. He brings salvation. In verse five, a deliverer could also be translated a savior. We're not told who this Savior is. Some commentators think it was the prophet Elisha. His name means God saves. But whoever this human savior was, it was the Lord who provided him. The significant point is that God showed his power and love in a clear and obvious way. He acted to save Israel from her desperate situation. And the wording here tells us it really was desperate. The end of verse 5 says that after this deliverance, they were able to live in their own homes as they had before. That implies the Arameans hadn't just been ruling Israel, they'd actually been driving the Israelites out of their homes and off their land. But God's salvation comes, the people can return home. And wouldn't we expect that would make an impact on their hearts? Surely. But, verse 6 tells us, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued in them. Also, the Asherah pole remained standing in Samaria. Asherah was supposed to be a female goddess. And this may actually be a new Asherah pole. Because when Jehu had finished his work, it's really not likely any of those things would have been left in Israel. But now that they're free from oppression, the Israelites celebrate with a new idol. This is Israel's reaction to God's mercy. When they were in a desperate situation, Jehoahaz cried out to God, God was quick to provide salvation. But what we find is, Israel is unmoved by God's salvation. One writer says, the warmth of God's pity did not soften the hardness of their infidelity. God's deliverance leaves them cold and unchanged. And that's a sure sign of spiritual death. Sometimes we talk about having a heart of stone. And what we mean is some events are so moving, it would take a heart of stone not to be moved by it. But that is the state Israel's in. They see God's salvation, and they turn right back to idols they've carved with their own hands. They stay devoted to things that can never save them. And this isn't the first time we've seen this in the Bible. The wording of verse 4 makes a link all the way back to the Exodus from Egypt long before this the book of Exodus tells how the Israelites were enslaved and how their lives were made bitter down in Egypt but we're told God heard their cry he saw how the Egyptians were oppressing them and he sent them a deliverer Moses and the Israelites watched As God brought great salvation through Moses, Pharaoh's grip on them was broken by ten plagues. Then God opened a way out of Egypt. The Red Sea parted for them to cross. And then it closed on Pharaoh's army as they chased behind. How could those Israelites be unchanged by that? But what we find is the Red Sea was hardly out of sight before they were talking about going back to Egypt. They were unmoved by God's salvation. And that was a sign of death. Only a heart of stone could turn its back on that mercy poured out from heaven. And the same principle applies today. We have this Banner on the wall here from John's Gospel. And according to the Bible, this describes God's greatest work of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. According to the Bible, that is God's greatest work of salvation. And if you can go unmoved by it, that doesn't mean you're enlightened. It doesn't mean you're progressive. It means you're dead. It means the part of you that matters most has flatlined. And you should not be content with that. You shouldn't be comfortable with it. Treat it as an alarm bell. Something has to be fixed. You have to find life. If you're in that situation, start by asking God to turn your hard heart into a responsive heart. And then give your attention to what God has done through His Son, Jesus. Don't rest until your heart has been melted by God's salvation. Don't be content to be unmoved. Then there's a second sign of death in this passage. Now, for some of us, I think this hits a lot closer to home than the first one. What we find next in verses 10 to 20 is a king uncommitted. To God's salvation. We're told that Jehoahaz is succeeded by his son Jehoash. And if you're able to keep all of these names straight, good for you. We'll put your name on a plaque. You deserve it. But thankfully, for the rest of us, we'll never have to sit an exam on the various, very similar names of Israel's kings. But as we go through this, what we do need to pay attention to is the lessons of their lives. That's why they're here. And if we pay attention to Jehoash's life, we notice he's introduced to us in the same way his father was. Down in verse 11. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. But then we have to ask, how does that fit with what we read down in verse 14? Verse 14 says, Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash king of Israel went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. By this point, Elisha has ministered in Israel for around 50 years. And along with his predecessor, Elijah, he dominated this period in Israel's history. These two prophets have been God's representatives. They spoke the truth to a nation that by and large didn't want to hear it. But here, Jehuash seems to be different. Elisha is dying, and the king seems to grasp the significance of that. He weeps. He calls Elisha, my father, a sign of great respect, reverence. And he refers to Elisha as the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because that is how Elisha described Elijah when Elijah was being taken up to heaven. And what it meant was, Elijah had been the true strength of Israel. Forget the kings and all their battle equipment. Elijah had been God's one-man army to defend the good and defeat the bad. When Elijah was gone, Elisha took over his role. And here Jehoash acknowledges any protection we've had in Israel, it's come from God through Elisha. He is the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Earlier in this chapter we were told that Israel's army was completely decimated during the reign of Jehoash's father. There was hardly anything left. And the army was described as like the dust at threshing time scattered and pitiful so jehoash understands the significance of elisha's death it means we're going to be vulnerable our enemies are going to be lining up to pick us apart and jehoash weeps so we cannot say he's unmoved He knows there's a desperate need for God's word and God's power in Israel. But what we find is when it comes down to it, for all of his tears, Jehoash is uncommitted. How do we know that? Well, what happens next seems a bit strange when we read it. Elisha leads the king through what looks to be an overly elaborate ceremony. As we read this, we might just think, why don't we just have a conversation with the guy? Why do all this stuff with the arrows? Well, this is a test. The point of this is to reveal the king's commitment. Sure, he's cried a few tears. He's said the right things. But is there any depth to his commitment? does it go beyond words and tears or does it stop there that's what this is about and the first part of it is straightforward enough At this point Aram is the biggest threat to Israel we've seen that plenty of times and that country lies to the east of Israel so Elisha tells the king to shoot an arrow in that direction Elisha puts his own hands on the king's hands And when the arrow flies out the window, Elisha explains what it means. Down in the middle of verse 17. The Lord's arrow of victory. The arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. So this is a promise. Victory is available. It's there to be had. The Lord will give victory. And then having made that clear, Elisha says to the king, in effect, let's see how committed you are. How much do you want what God has promised? Verse 18. Elisha says, take the arrows. And the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. It's not completely clear whether the king is supposed to take the arrows in his hand and beat them on the floor of Elisha's room, or whether he's supposed to shoot them out the window so they stick in the ground beside the first arrow. But either way, our question is why does Elisha get so ticked off when the king only does it three times? Well, remember, this has been set up as a test of the king's commitment. Take the arrows amounts to saying, Show me what you've got. Let it rip. Go crazy with the arrows. That's the understanding. And that's why Elisha is furious when the king pings off three arrows or bashes three times on the floor and then sits back down to his cup of tea. Elisha is furious because what Jehoash has just done amounts to saying, look, I'm just not that bothered. I know I was crying at your bedside a while ago, but now that you tell me, Defeating Aram is actually going to take a long, hard struggle. You're telling me God will give me the victory, but only after many battles? Well, I'm not up for a long, hard struggle. I'll go three rounds with the enemy, but after that, I'm out. I quit. Jehoash has God's promise that commitment and perseverance will end in victory. But Jehoash says, you know, I just don't want it that much. If you're calling me to put in effort on the way to victory, then you can count me out. Jehoash seemed to be alive. He could cry real tears about losing God's word and God's power. He could acknowledge that God's saving power was his only hope. He had the right words and he had the right emotion to go with them. But it turns out his commitment doesn't go very deep. Earlier we looked back to the Exodus generation. They saw God's deliverance from Egypt. But it didn't move them. We saw that. And that same generation had been blessed with a great promise from God. God said, I will give you the land of Canaan. You will have to march through the desert to get there. And you'll have to fight daunting enemies in Canaan. But the land is for the taking. I will give you victory. The land will be yours. What happened? Well, the Israelites got to the edge of the promised land. Their scouts went in. And brought back stories of powerful people and fortified cities. And the Israelites said, forget it. They're too strong for us. Let's go back to Egypt. In fact, all but two of them said that. Joshua and Caleb alone said, yes, they're big. Yes, they're daunting. But let's go after what God has promised us. He will go with us and he will give it to us. From that whole generation, only two men were committed. They were willing to pursue what God had promised. Despite the difficulties, despite the daunting enemies, they pressed on with confidence in God. And they received what God had promised. And so here's the challenge for those of us who say we trust God who say our hope is in him. The challenge is, are we willing to fight the battles of the Christian life? Are we willing to persevere to the end? Or when it gets difficult, will we just quit and give it all up? Jesus talked about people who receive his word with joy. But when obeying his word leads to trouble or persecution, they quickly fall away. When their commitment is tested, it turns out they have no real commitment. It was just an emotion. And when the emotion passed, there was nothing left. if you and I have responded to God's salvation, if we say He is our Savior and our Lord, but then we're unwilling to live for Him, if we're not up for the struggles and challenges that come with living for Him, and the sacrifices, if we're not up for obeying Him when it hurts, when we'd rather go our own way In our relationships, in the things we live for. If our commitment goes no deeper than words and emotions, then we need to realize something is wrong. We dare not be comfortable with our lack of commitment. We might enjoy singing songs and maybe even listening to sermons. But if our lives the rest of the week show no noticeable commitment to God, what does that say about our spiritual health? Can we really say there is spiritual life in us? Do we find that actually we need to take the Bible much more seriously? when the bible describes the christian life as a fight and a race when it tells us the crown of life comes to those not just who get emotional about god's salvation but who persevere to the end through difficulties and trials Maybe what we need to do is to put on our spiritual armor and get on with living for God. Trusting him to supply us with the grit and the determination we need. Talking about lack of commitment is not saying we should dig down and find the hero inside ourselves. It's saying we have to look to God and get going with living for God. Here in 2 Kings, what we find is an Israel that is both unmoved and uncommitted to God's salvation. This is not a place of spiritual life. And to put the seal of death on it all, verse 20 tells us that Elisha himself dies and is buried. For 50 years, this man brought God's word to this place of death. But even that has been removed now. Elisha, you'll see, has no successor. He took over from Elijah, but no one takes over from him. And yes, there will be other prophets in Israel but the death of Elisha is like a seal on the death of Israel. This dead nation is going to slide towards exile in Assyria. It won't actually happen for another 80 years. But with Elisha's death, it's almost like God has closed the case as far as Israel is concerned. That's how it seems. But in fact, death is not the last word in this passage. We end with a reminder there is a love that is stronger than death. Verses 20 and 21 give us what seems like a really odd incident. Moab was to the southeast of Israel. And we already know Israel itself is at a low ebb. The army has been decimated. And so raiding parties from Moab are making the most of this opportunity. They're coming in, picking off what they can from Israel and jumping back out again. And in that situation, we're told, some Israelites are trying to bury a body. They're surprised at their work by raiders and in their desperation to escape, they just chuck the body into the nearest tomb. It's probably a cave cut into the rock rather than a hole in the ground. They chuck in the body and it just happens to be Elisha's tomb. And contact with the dead prophet's bones brings that dead body back to life. What on earth is that about? Well, let's remember what we know of Elisha. His ministry... Was a ministry of life. He did that in a physical sense. He brought back the Shunammite lady's son to life. He provided food in a time of famine to sustain life. And alongside that, Israel was brought, Elisha brought spiritual life in the midst of a spiritually dead people. We've seen how small groups of people joined him in worshipping the Lord instead of idols. But now Elisha is dead. And it seems like his ministry was all for nothing. The nation has not turned to the Lord. Not in any kind of numbers. Elisha has not handed over his mantle to any successor. And in a few years, Israel is going to be exiled. Those are the facts, and they're not going to change. But here, God sends a signal. He's saying, my life-giving power has not been exhausted. Yes, Israel is dead. My prophet Elisha is dead. But that doesn't mean there's no hope. God's saying, I can still bring life. I will bring life. Because my love is stronger than death. This incident is similar to the vision Ezekiel was given. We read it earlier those dry bones come into life. An assurance of God's life giving power. And here we're given an explanation to go with the event. Look at it in verse 23. The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. To this day means even during the time of exile. That's when Kings was written. So even when it seems Israel couldn't be any more dead, even when they've been ejected from their homeland, even then the writer says, the Lord's love is alive. His life-giving power is at work. And look at the reason. It's because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's remind ourselves of that covenant it's God's promise to Abraham about 1,400 years before this time in history. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God made that promise long before Jeroboam and his two golden calves, long before Ahab and Jezebel and their statues of Baal, long before the whole mess we've seen in the books of Kings. God made his promise first. And by pointing all the way back to that promise, the writer of Kings is saying, before all this human rebellion, and failure, and lack of commitment. Before all of it, there was God's promise to bring blessing to all peoples on earth and to bring it through Abraham's descendants, through these dead people. Before sin and death, there was God's love. And that love is stronger than death. When Abraham's descendants have failed in every way, when they were unmoved by what they saw of God's saving power, when they were uncommitted, unwilling to persevere, God wouldn't give up. He would bring life on the other side of this death. How did he do it? Well, he preserved his people even during the time of exile. Years later, he brought some of them back from exile. And from those ragged descendants of Abraham, God brought blessing to all nations of the earth. The New Testament calls Jesus Christ the son of Abraham and the son of God. It tells us he died on a cross for a world dead in its sin. He went into the grave. But unlike Elisha, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose so this dead world could have life. So you and I could share in his resurrection power. It's summed up again on our banner. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are unmoved by God's great salvation, ask him to overcome that spiritual death in your heart so that you can love the one who has loved you first. If you find yourself uncommitted to God's salvation, if you feel like giving up, if you hardly care enough to fight your spiritual battles anymore, if God's promises for the future don't seem worth it, ask him to overcome that spiritual death in your heart. So that you long to see his face. And because of that longing, you're willing to fight on and finish the race. Whether we need the faith to believe in him or the strength to keep pressing on in obedience to him, not a single one of us can say I'm a lost cause. You cannot say that. If you are part of all peoples on earth, then God's blessing is available to you. You can receive his love that is stronger than death. And that love will lead you out of death and into eternal life. No one here... Is a lost cause. The next song we're going to sing reminds us God can do in us what we need Him to do. He's here and there's no work that's too hard for Him to do. We're going to sing Be Still and then we'll finish by celebrating our risen, life giving Savior. We're going to sing a song that we learned at Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. But first, let's remember God's power. Be still.